If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 21. So last week we looked at uh, the Jesus right, it's a couple of days before today. It's a couple of days before Palm Sunday, the scene, kind of before the scene where he's moving towards Jerusalem. He's got this large crowd of pilgrims with him. They're all going to Jerusalem for Passover, which is a major a religious festival for the Jews. Uh, during Passover, they're looking back to Exodus, those first few chapters in Exodus where God delivers the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, through the, the plagues, the Red Sea, that whole deal through Moses. And they're also, in this time, looking forward to God sending them a Messiah, the Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression. So the, Israel is controlled by the, as part of the Roman Empire, they, and they're, they're oppressed in some ways, and so they're looking for deliverance. And so that's kind of the, the atmosphere that's swirling. And again, you've got a large crowd with Jesus, and today we'll see him actually entering into Jerusalem. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. So as they approach, so that's Jesus in this large crowd, including his disciples. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So to, the, the big uh, piece for us in terms of understanding the story, the action is very straightforward, is it's a, it's a deliberate act by Jesus. So over three years of public ministry, Jesus has traveled well over a thousand miles. He never has ridden anything anywhere. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we never see him doing anything but walking in order to get around. And now when he's on his last lap, so it's a mile, you see there, Bethany is where he spent the night. That's a mile from Bethphage, which is a mile from Jerusalem. So he, he literally is on his last mile after walking well over a thousand miles for the last three years, and he says to two of his, two of his disciples, go get me a, a baby donkey to ride into Jerusalem on. It's very deliberate. He's not tired. He's walked, again, his whole public ministry. All he's done is walk. And now he is, he is saying, I want to ride this last mile into Jerusalem with this huge crowd with me, with uh, the Passover looming, I'm going to choose to ride the, this baby donkey into this city with all of these people with me. Jesus fulfilled over 48 major Old Testament prophecies. Some of them, like we all fulfilled, born of a woman. Like we all checked the box on that. Many of them were fulfilled without his uh, intention. There was nothing he could do about it. Tribe of Judah house of David. There was nothing he could do about that. By the time he was old enough to know that the lot had already been cast on that. There, and it, there was some around his crucifixion as well that the soldiers would, 
you know, gamble for his clothes. That was something he had no control over. This is an instance where Jesus deliberately fulfills a prophecy. There's a, a verse in Zechariah 9 that we just read. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows that. This is a messianic prophecy. So the Jewish people saw this as a picture of what the Messiah would do. He would ride into Jerusalem on. He knows the people know that. And he knows this is a time of year when everybody's looking for their Messiah. So he says to two of his disciples, go get me one. I don't know if he prearranged it. With the guy who owned Supernatural, he had some insight from God that there would be someone who would be willing to lend the donkeys to him. It doesn't matter. The, the end result is the same. He deliberately fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah. Filling this prophecy is, I'm that guy. So for three years, he's been very quiet, very secretive about his identity, uh, uh, being the king, being last week. And now, towards the end of his public ministry, and what's ultimately going to be towards the end of his life, He's become much more open and much more overt. And this is one, This is a declaration. He's saying, um, I'm the king. Now, I'm sure at some point in Jerusalem's monkey before, but it didn't, the, the fanfare wasn't there. There's something special about Jesus. He spent three years saying, and three years teaching about the kingdom, and three years challenging religious leaders, and three years inviting people, version of, of events that two nights before, the Friday night before, he'd actually been in Bethwell, and he was at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. A huge crowd came because they wanted to see Jesus, and they wanted to see Lazarus. Throw that into the mix as well. People come to see him and to see this guy who he's whirling around. Jesus gets on a crowd. They, they understand. They get them. All of the stuff with the cloaks, all of that stuff with city after he's those things have old tone. After Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, our way of down down these with them. That who had my the building. This is called the court of the Gentiles. So I don't know that anybody in here is Jewish. Most of you aren't. So this is the only place you could go. You weren't allowed in the building. I, we wouldn't be allowed in the building. We would have to stay out here. This is the only place that Gentiles could go. And what would happen on these major feasts? They would set up a market in that area. So if you're traveling, if you're a pilgrim, so think of the crowds coming with Jesus. If you're a pilgrim and you're coming to Jerusalem, uh, you would have to bring, you have to pay a tax. It's a temple tax, and it had to be in a certain currency. And that tax was used to keep the temple up. It was required. God set the, the rate back in Exodus. It's a half of a shekel. So you would bring your money from whatever country you were, you were from, and you needed somebody to change it for you into the local currency so you could pay your half shekel tax. And there also were animals that you needed to sacrifice. Depending on your income level, there were different animals that you would sacrifice, and depending on the festival, there were different animals that you would sacrifice. And if you came from a long way away, it was difficult to get an animal from where you were to Jerusalem. And something may happen to the animal on the way, and in order for the animal to be sacrificed, it had to be kind of grade A. It couldn't be, it, it, it couldn't be injured, it couldn't be lame, it couldn't be defective in any way. And so what, a lot of times what a traveler would choose to do is just to bring money, and they would get to Jerusalem and they would buy an animal that was acceptable once they got there. It, it, and it was fine. That's not, that's not taking a shortcut. If you traveled from a long way, it, made, it was more, made more sense to do that. So you needed guys who were selling animals and you needed guys who were changing money. 
And there were four markets on the Mount of Olives where you could do all of that. But uh, recently, in Jesus' day, recent, not for us, um, a, a guy named Caiaphas, he was a high priest, he set up a market right there in that courtyard of the Gentiles because he wanted a cut. He wanted the temple to get some of the money from all of these pilgrims who were coming. And you can imagine how that would work. You see all of these tourists coming in and they've all got money to spend and the dollar signs start ringing in your head and you think, we need a cut. We need a piece of that as well. And so he set up a market in that court of the Gentiles. And remember, that area, that strip right there, that's the only place the Gentiles can go. So the thinking at this time, and it's some of it is, is based in reality, God kind of lives in the, that tower. The Holy of Holies is in that tallest place. That's where God is. And so if you're a Gentile, that's as close as you can get, kind of physically and metaphorically. That's as close to God as you're going to get unless you become a Jew. So in that place, as close as you can get to God, now people are selling stuff. They're selling animals, which are smelly and noisy, and they're changing money. Necessary services for sure, but they're doing it in the one place that you actually can go and worship. That's, that's it for you if you're a Gentile. That's as close as you can get. If you're at all interested in the God of Israel, that's the place where you can go. And what the leaders of the temple have now done is they've made your place of worship a place of business and commerce and trade. And there's nothing wicked about business or commerce or trade, but Jesus is angry when he sees it because it's not appropriate for the setting. He's angry at the temple leaders, at the religious leadership, because they've turned what he says, a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. Mark gives the full quote in his version. It's a house of prayer for all nations. So this place where the Gentiles should be cultivating a relationship with God. So if you're a Jew and there's a a non-Jew, a Gentile, who is coming to the temple, they're expressing some level of interest and desire in your God. You would think you would want to cultivate that. You would think that would be a sentiment that you would want to help grow. And in order to do that, you may make it, you may remove barriers for them to interact with God, not make it more difficult. If we had someone from another faith in our sanctuary this morning, if we had a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist, I would think that we would desire to say, if you've made the effort to come here to a place that's foreign to you, then we want to help cultivate whatever it was in you that caused you to come. We want that thing to grow. We want to fan that flame. We don't want to make it harder for you to explore whatever level of interest you have in our God, in Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders. You've got these Gentiles who are expressing some level of interest in your God. And rather than cultivating that interest, and rather than removing some barriers, actually helping them engage with God, you're making it more difficult because you're selling animals and changing money in the only place they can worship. You've made what should be a house of prayer, a den of robbers. You've made thieves feel at home and safe and secure in this temple. And you're making people who are seeking to worship feel like outsiders. You've completely turned everything on its head. And then he goes into the temple and lame and blind people come and they're not allowed in the temple at all. And Jesus heals them and then children are worshiping him. And to show the disconnect between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious leaders are indignant 
at healing and worship, and they're okay with commercialization and keeping people from engaging with God. They're not indignant that Gentiles can't worship the Lord. They're indignant that Jesus is healing people. That's how far the disconnect, that's, that's the divide between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's a picture of why the temple has to go, which eventually the temple goes. Within a generation, it's gone. Because it's become a den of thieves and robbers. It's completely lost the purpose that God intended for it to have, even beyond recovery. And Jesus is a better way. So thinking about that for us, what are the connection points? Jesus was the king. Jesus is the king. He hadn't gotten demoted. He didn't have a different job. He's still the king, and he still does the same thing. He still is looking for, we'll call it a clean temple. That's the same. And he still cleanses the temple. The difference in the Old Testament, the temple was a physical structure. It began in Exodus. It was uh, portable. It was a tent, the tent of meeting. It was the tabernacle. And God told Moses, here's exactly what, what it needs to look like. Here are the dimensions and here are the materials. And then we read in First Chronicles that God gives a blueprint to David for a physical structure. That's not it. That was Herod's temple. David's had been destroyed. This is a... a it's bigger and grander than the one David built it's off of some of the same blueprint and ideas, though. And so in the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God lives, and it's a place where people go to meet God, and it's a physical building. Originally, it's portable because the Israelites move around, and once David sets up Jerusalem as the capital, we've looked at that in the last several weeks, this temple is built by his son, by Solomon, a permanent structure. But it's a place where God dwells, and it's a place where people come to meet with God. In the New Testament, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the temple still serves the same function. It's a place where God dwells. And it's a place where people go to meet God. But the form is different. The function is the same. The form is different. The pe- people, us, we're the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3 is plural. Y'all, we are the temple of God. So when we gather together, not this building, this building is not the temple of God. But as the people of God, we are. God dwells among us as the gathered church, as the gathered people of God. And in 1 Corinthians 6, we read that individually, we are also a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3 is plural, and 1 Corinthians 6 is singular. And so what you see there is as individual followers of Jesus, I and you are temples of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us. And then collectively, when we gather together, God dwells among us. So God lives in me. He lives in you if you're following Jesus. And he dwells among us when we gather together, regardless of where that is. Think back to John 4, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Pretty soon it's not going to matter what mountain you worship on. The Father's looking for people who worship him in spirit and truth. Geography doesn't matter anymore. Buildings don't matter anymore. Locations don't matter anymore. The gathering of the people of God, whether that's in a building or under a tree, whether that's in a house, whether it's four people or 4,000 people, that's all irrelevant. When the people of God gather together, he dwells among them. They become a temple. You individually are always a temple. If you're following Jesus, the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, takes up residence in you. He's a deposit given to you, guaranteeing your inheritance in the Lord. So am I the kind of place where God wants to dwell? Does God feel at home in me? And maybe you can ask yourself the same question. 
does God feel at home in you? If you're following Jesus, then Jesus lives within you. Maybe all analogies break down, but take it for what it's worth. Think of Jesus as a guest in your house. Does he feel welcome and wanted in your home? And you can look at that in a couple of different ways. There's a negative question or a negative maybe uh, side to that. Are there things that I'm doing that would make him feel unwanted or unwelcome? And we can probably all make a list of sins, and most likely the sins that we'll list will be the ones that we don't commit, because that's kind of how we work. I would encourage you just to ask him the question. I'm not going to get into specifics there. It's not necessarily helpful. I want to encourage you. We're going to take communion in a minute. And before we do, just to ask the Lord the question, am I doing anything currently That's making you feel unwanted or unwelcome. Is there anything I'm engaging in in my life, a pattern of behavior or thinking? Remember, sin is missing the mark. Is there some place where I'm missing the mark that's causing you to feel unwanted or unwelcome in my house? Ask him the question. You may be surprised by what he says. And commit to responding accordingly. The positive version of that is, what am I doing to make him feel wanted and to make him feel welcomed? How am I cultivating relationship with him? And you can think of all of those spiritual practices that you can engage in prayer and worship and reading the Bible, spending time in his presence. When it comes to you as a temple, a place where God dwells, if you're following Jesus, it's, he, he already lives within you. That's done. And so then, to me, again, take the analogy for what it's worth. The question is, does he feel welcomed and wanted? Am I engaging in behaviors that cause him to say, this is a place where I feel comfortable, or this is a place where I really don't feel comfortable? And I would encourage you maybe just to to think about that. Ask him if there's anything he would have you shift or change. The, 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 The bigger challenge for me The one that's difficult for me is thinking about, am I a person in whom people meet God? When people meet me, can they meet God in me? That's a bigger challenge for me. The first question is pretty personal. Does God feel comfortable in my home? I can kind of take care of all of that offline, and I'm fine doing that. That's kind of just me and him. This next question, there's a public dimension, and it can make me much more uncomfortable. I don't know if you find that challenging or not, but saying, when people meet me, are they, can they connect to the Lord? Or another way, it's a, maybe it's a more helpful picture. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, we're the salt of the earth. One of the properties of salt is it makes people thirsty. So when people meet me, do they become thirsty for Jesus? Do my words and actions and... And my presence, does it cause people to want to move towards Jesus or not? And sometimes, honestly, the answer is yes. Sometimes it is. And sometimes, honestly, the answer is no. And I wonder for you what would be the answer to that question. When people are around you, does your, do your words, do your actions, does your presence cause them to thirst for Jesus? Does being around you make people want to move towards Jesus? him. Sometimes for me, the answer is no. I'm not a chameleon. I don't change the way I act. I don't, that's not, I never really have done that. That's not been an area where I struggle. It may be one where you struggle, but I tend to get quiet. 
that's what I'll do. And so it could be that I'm not making people thirsty because I'm in a situation and I just kind of shut down. I just don't, I just don't talk. I don't, I don't say much. I kind of put myself on the periphery of a group. I don't know if that's an area where you struggle. You may be someone who changes your behavior to fit in. You kind of go along to get along. That obviously is not helpful either. But I was thinking much more in a positive direction. This is something I've been praying about for over a year in my own life. God, I want, to, I want when people are around me, I want them to be thirsty for you. I don't want anybody. That's what I want. That's what I want my words and my actions and my presence to do in other people is to spur them on to love and good deeds, to cause them to desire to move deeper in their relationship with Jesus. And the combination I've been thinking about, which is powerful, is holiness and joy. If there's a way of holding those things together in life, I think that makes people thirsty for Jesus. If you hold together in your own life, holiness Enjoy. When I think about holiness, I don't know how you are if you're raised in church. There's a, a tendency to think of holiness uh, in a largely negative way. These are all the things I can't do, do not do, all of these things. And that's what holiness is. It's a list of rules. It's a list of don'ts. There's a, in Matthew 11, when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, he says, John came, never, came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he had a demon, and sometimes I see holiness as kind of a John the Baptist thing. It's all these things we can't do. It's a very ascetic way of living life. It's a um, very tight circle. But Jesus says in the next verse, the Son of Man, him, he said, I came eating and drinking, you said I'm a glutton and I'm a drunkard. And Jesus was just like us. And yet he never sinned. And so there was some way Jesus was able to fully embrace life and yet never sin. And that, that's the challenge for me. If I'm honest, I can easily fall into a John the Baptist rut. I can do that. I cannot do things all day long. But to think about what is a, a fully orbed holiness that's full of joy, that's a challenge for me. But that is, I think, what our world needs. I think that is what makes people thirsty. Somehow Jesus never compromised morally, ever. And he never let people off the hook in terms of their behavior, ever, not once. And yet people who were the most broken found the most comfort in him. The one who you would think would, would find him judgmental, who would say, that's too difficult. I can't do that. That's, that wasn't the result of people being around him. They were willing to pay whatever the, the, the price was to continue to follow him. There was a, he embodied a level of holiness that wasn't just not sinning, although he did not sin. It was a fully connected relationship with his father. It was a life filled and led by the Holy Spirit. He was full of joy, and people saw that and said, that life is better than mine, and I want it. And I wonder in you. When people are around you, I wonder in me, when people are around me, do they say that life is better than mine? Not you're better than me, but that life is better than mine and I want it. Or do they say, there's no difference between you and me, except you've got to get up early on Sunday and I get to sleep in. Or they say, if that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, I'm not interested. You're miserable. You're miserable. There's no peace in your life. There's no joy. You're judgmental. But when people don't hear that as, as 
I'm not, it's not condemnation, it's a question. When I look at, when I read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and I see the people who are drawn to Jesus, who I would think would be turned off by him, because his, he never lowered his standards one time. When a woman was brought to him who was caught in adultery, he said, don't do it anymore. He didn't say, oh, it's fine. Don't do it anymore. He said things like, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. It's an instrument of death and follow me. He said things like, if you're going to follow me, well, you have to hate your family. You have to hate them in comparison to how much you love me. If you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what you have to do if you're going to be with me. I don't have any place to lay my head. Are you sure you want to do this? I'm a homeless man. I'm a wandering minister. Are you sure you want to connect with me? Why don't you let the dead bury the, the, the dead? You just come and follow me. You leave your parents. Throw aside your nets, the, the tools that you use to make a living. You've got to leave that stuff behind if you're going to follow me. And yet as I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, I see people constantly saying, I'm in. Yes. And I wonder in my life and in your life, is that the fruit of people hearing your words, seeing your actions, being in your presence, hearing my words, seeing my actions, and being in my presence? Does it make them say, I want what you have? You're making me thirsty for Jesus. Holiness and joy, I think, it's a powerful combination. It's not a list of things that we can't do. It's, this, it's a fully orbed life. We're led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy, naturally produced in us by Him. And that causes people to say, I want what you have. Let's take a minute and pray, if you would. So you, I'm going to ask you, we've got plenty of time, so we're going to kind of go slow through this, if we can. We're going to take communion. The logistics of that, you'll come forward a row at a time and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. We'll have gluten-free communion here on the table that you can grab if you need. We'll also have some ministry teams in the corners, and we would love for you to stop by and allow them to pray for you. And a couple of things I want you thinking about as we move towards communion. So Jesus is still the king, and just like Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus still of what Jesus has done for us, which is remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He's the one who cleans you up. You don't have to clean yourself up. So you don't need to hear this as a challenge to do better. You need to hear this as an invitation to allow him to do more in you. That's his work. You yield. He accomplishes. He leads. You obey. And he'll actually even give you the strength to obey if you'll ask him. As a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you and he writes the law of God on your heart. It's internalized now. And one of the promises of the new covenant, the covenant under which we live, is that the Holy Spirit will move us to keep the law. So you don't even have to come up with the, the inner resources to do that. You can rely on the Holy Spirit within you.
So a couple of questions for you to think about. First, think about yourself as a temple, a place where God dwells. If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm not, I don't follow Jesus. I wonder if you'd be willing to ask him, what does that look like for me? I would encourage you between now and next Sunday, between now and Easter, read Mark. short gospel. It's 16 chapters. You can read it in an hour. Easy. Read Mark and see if Jesus grabs your heart. See if seeing his quality of life lived out causes you to thirst for that same quality of life for yourself. Read it openly. God, and I would even encourage you to pray. God, I pray as I read this book, if this is real, would you make me hungry and thirsty for the reality it contains? And just see what happens in your heart as you read. For those of you who have made a decision to follow Jesus, would you be willing to ask the question right now? God, is there anything in me that makes you feel uncomfortable or unwelcome in my home? You can just, if you're willing, just pray that in your heart. Take a second and see if the Lord speaks to you. Something came to your mind and you're willing to repent. And that's all you say in your heart. You say, God, I... I acknowledge that. I'm I'm sorry. I pray that you'd forgive me. Would you give me grace to move in a different direction? You can know from 1 John 1, 9 that if you ask God to forgive you, he's faithful to do that. So that sin has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. It's been completely blotted out. God doesn't erase our sins where you can still see a faint outline like with a pencil. He blots them out. It's like white out. You can't see it at all. And that's reality for you if you ask him to forgive you just now. Maybe another question you'd be willing to ask the Lord. God, is there anything that you would have me do to make you feel more welcome? anything that you would want from me that would cause you to feel more at home in my heart, in my house. I don't know what God would say to you, but I'm almost positive it would, it would be relational in nature. What he's wanting from all of us is just he's wanting access. That's what he wants. Wants access and he wants time. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to wake up at super early in the morning. You don't have to. You don't have to do that. Just make a commitment in your heart to give him more access. In that direction.
may even want to begin by saying, God, I want you to feel welcome in my home. If I'm honest, I don't even think about you that way. That's not on my radar screen. You feeling at home would be for you to be comfortable with me. That's what I want. Would you make that desire stronger than all my all these other things that are competing for my time and my energy and my affection? You may need to start there. Discipline will only carry you so far. There's not a desire in your heart. You'll fade quickly. That doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a person. Shift and you think about, am I a place, when people are around me, are they, does it, do I, do my words, do my actions, do my, does my presence cause them to thirst for Jesus? And your answer may be absolutely. That's great. Maybe like me, and your answer is it depends. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You may want to ask the Lord this question, God, what is it in me? When am I, if I can change the metaphors, uh, right after Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, he says you're the light of the world, and don't put your light under a basket. God, what is it that causes me to put my light under a basket? afraid of what other people are going to think? Am I afraid of rejection? Am I just, do I not have any confidence? I'm actually going to know what to say. So I'd rather not say anything than say the wrong thing. Do I honestly just not believe that life is better with you than without? I'm kind of a to each its own kind of guy. God, what is it in me that causes me to put my light under a basket? I don't want to do that anymore. Would you show me what that is? God may bring something to your mind. The same thing, you just repent. God, I confess whatever that is. And I pray that you would forgive me. That you would empower me to move in a new direction. Maybe what you want to pray is, God, I pray that I have a life that makes other people thirsty. And if that idea of holiness and joy connects with you, it may not. But if it does, you may want to say, that's what I want, God. I don't want to water down who you are. I don't want to lower the standards that you set for your people. And yet I want my life to be of such a a quality in you that it causes people not to run away, but to run towards. If you read through the Gospels, the only people who seem to move away from Jesus are the Pharisees and the religious leaders. There are a few other exceptions, but in general, those are the ones who move away from Him. You're not going to draw, your life won't draw everyone. God, would you give me that? Would you create that quality in my own life? For me, God, what's a holiness that's not just a, this is what I don't do. But here's a a full life, well lived in the Spirit. Maybe you're like me and you want to pray, God, I pray that 
there be a deep well of joy within me that would come out regardless of the circumstances. Maybe you want to pray, God, I want to be a man or a woman of hope. I want to have a confident expectation of a better future regardless of the circumstances in the present. Maybe you want to pray that you be a person of peace. God, that I would not be rattled by my circumstances. That I would have this supernatural sense of your nearness to me. Even when things are very difficult and that sense of peace would impact others who are struggling as well. So God, my prayer for us individually, and that will obviously affect the collective as well, but my prayer for us individually is that we would be who we are. We are a temple, but that's not negotiable. If we're following you, then your presence lives within us. And so I pray we'd be good hosts to your presence, God. I pray that we would be people in whom you feel comfortable. We would be people with whom you feel welcomed and at home. And God, I pray that we would be people, when others are around us, it would cause them to be thirsty for you. That we would live our lives in such a way, in the power of your Spirit, naturally supernatural, that other people would begin to move towards you, Jesus, by our words, by our actions, and by our presence. And I pray even this week, the men and women in this room would have that impact on the people that they love. Even as we look towards Easter, there'd be people who right now have churches not on their horizon next Sunday. They don't even know it's going to be Easter. They just know it's spring break. God, I pray that uh, because of the impact of the people in this room, those people would make a different choice next Sunday. That they would make a choice towards you. They would make a step towards you. God, as we take communion, I pray that you would remind all of us that you do the work of cleansing. That's not a work that we have to undergo on our own. That you remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. That you blot out our transgressions. That when you look at us, you see the righteousness of your Son. When you look at us, you see pure and holy and blameless and spotless. God, I pray for those, particularly those who are prone to guilt in this room, that they would receive the fullness of your forgiveness for them in this moment. God, I pray that we would recognize, Jesus, you are the king, and the king cleanses the temple. And you've done that work on our behalf. So we want to receive that finished work into our own life. And we want to live into that work. We want to become who we are. So would you give us grace to do that in these moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for sticking with me during the time. Oh, you, you can come forward a row at a time. Kim will cue you. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. And we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. Uh, during communion, we always want to pray for people who are physically sick. It's one of the benefits of the death and resurrection of Jesus is our healing. And so if you are physically sick in any way, whether that's chronic or something that's just kind of acute, we want to pray The guys will anoint you with oil on the back of your hand and pray very simply for Jesus to heal you. There may be something else stirring in your heart, maybe something we talked about today, maybe something else going on in your life. We would love for you to get to receive prayer uh, this morning from these teams. Uh, Bo will lead us into worship and then he'll dismiss us in a couple of minutes.